We're going to look at Mark chapter 1 this evening, and I want to read to you from that, and then uh, tell you what I want to do from that passage. So Mark chapter 1, beginning at verses 14, and then we'll read through verse 20. Listen to what God says. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time was fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Passing alongside the sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting the net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. We're going to continue our series uh, that we began a couple weeks ago in the Gospel of Mark. And two weeks ago, we looked at what we might call uh, the, the introduction or the prologue. And it introduced us to Jesus, the Son of God. The whole gospel begins in verse 1, the beginning of the gospel of the Son of God. And it introduced us through the ministry of John the Baptist. And, and we learned several things from Uh, the first few verses of this book, that are absolutely crucial for us to remember again and again because they set the stage for our understanding of this good news about Jesus Christ. Because it's really important to understand that the gospel, as it's understood in the Bible, is not good news. It's not good advice. It's good news about a person. And we need to remember again and again what Mark wants to know about Jesus. And what we learned was this isn't a new story. It's the fulfillment of an old story. That throughout the Old Testament, God has been planning and preparing for this moment, for the fulfillment of his story of salvation. But we also saw that this Jesus, he came... He came to identify with sinners, to stand where you and I stand, which is another way of saying he came to bear our sin so that we wouldn't have to. And he came also, through his temptation, we learned that he came to get right what we got wrong. He came to reverse everything about the world that is broken And falling apart, riddled with sin and guilt. He has come to undo it and to make it right again. In other words, the overall thrust of the beginning of the book is that God is starting over. This is a new beginning. That in Jesus Christ, God is showing up in ways previously unknown, unknown and unthought of. And so, when we come to this passage, I want us to look at just two things tonight. 
How is it that Jesus begins this public ministry? There is a, there is a, a fairly significant gap, although you wouldn't necessarily know it as you move from verse 13 to verse 14. But there's a change here from the introduction about who Jesus is to when he shows up and he begins his public ministry. And the two things I want us to see are these, that Jesus preaches good news to you. And that Jesus gathers us into a new community. So first, let's look at Jesus preaches good news to you. What I want you to see here, really in verse 14, first of all, in this, his, his ministry beginning with a proclamation, an announcement of good news, is that he begins by moving towards people and his suffering. Let me show you a couple important details that Mark includes that we, uh, we need to pay attention to. Mark is known for being incredibly succinct and very brief. So it, it, we need to, to pause even when there are small details. And notice here in verse 14, Mark tells us that Jesus came into Galilee. Up to this point, Jesus has been in the wilderness, away from people. Out, removed from the cities where people do not gather. If they were to come and and see him, they'd have to make a trip, which is in fact what most people did to go and see John the Baptist. Jesus has been out in the wilderness. And there's a marked difference here between Jesus' ministry and John's ministry. John is out in the wilderness, removed from people, and they go to him. Here, Mark tells us that Jesus goes into Galilee. He goes to where people are. His movement is towards us, not away from us. In other words, Jesus is taking initiative to go where people are. To go where you and I live. But not only that, notice Mark begins in verse 14. Now after John was arrested, it's all he says. doesn't tell us why or where he is. He just tells us. That John has been arrested. And there's a couple things that we need to see here. The first thing Mark wants you to know by adding that detail is that the previous 13 verses have come to an end. This time of preparation, of getting ready for, for God's promised Messiah is over. It has arrived. He is now here. John's ministry is done. The greater one of which he spoke of has now come, and it's beginning. But not only that, that the period of getting ready is over, it also gives us a clue of what's to come for Jesus. Think with me for a moment. John's whole ministry was a ministry of preparation. And the way he talked about his ministry was he was getting ready for one greater than him that would come after him who was so much greater, he wasn't even worthy to stoop down and touch his feet. And if John's ministry led him to become, to be arrested, what would it mean? What's in store for the one to come after him? And he doesn't tell us this here. And if you, if you were the first time a reader, there would be, you would have suspense over what's going to happen If Jesus is the promised one, the Messiah, is he going to end up arrested just like John the Baptist? 
Now, as we have the whole gospel in front of us, I want to tell you how this clue works out because the very word that Mark uses for arrest here is also the same word to hand over or deliver that's used a total of 10 times from the end of chapter 9 all the way through Jesus' crucifixion. Mark is giving us a clue here of where the story is headed. In other words, Jesus begins his public ministry doing two things. Moving towards sinners on the way to suffering. He does both at the same time. It's our first clue that Jesus is the suffering king. So Mark begins with those two initial details that Jesus moves toward us But he does it, notice, with good news. Mark, in verse 14, says that Jesus came proclaiming the gospel of God. Here, in in just these two verses, verses 14 and 15, Mark summarizes the sum total of Jesus' teaching in his entire ministry. And he succinctly summarizes it in this concept, the kingdom of God. But notice how he introduces it. He says in verse 15, the time is fulfilled. What does he mean? There there are essentially two words for time in, in, in in the Greek language. One of them describes the passage of time, moment by moment by moment. The other word is is used to describe a decisive moment in history, a pivotal event. And it's that version, that that word that Mark uses here. The closest uh, comparison that we have in English is the difference between historical and historic. So, for example, all, all events are historical, but not all events are historic. So when Jesus shows up and says, the time is fulfilled, he's saying to you and to me, there is an historic moment right now. Now, it's, it's an event the world has never seen, and it's an event the, wor- the world will never see again. It is the crucial moment in the history of the world, and it is the kingdom of God is at hand. What does he mean by kingdom of God? This is a very succinct way of describing God's rule, his reign. And for Jesus and throughout the Bible, it is the way in which Jesus refers to the personal coming of God into a broken world, a fallen world, to bring salvation. That's what the kingdom of God is. And when Jesus said that it is at hand, he's using a word that means it's near And not just with respect to time, like it's near in the sense of, well, next week. But what he means when he says the kingdom of God is at hand or that it's near, he means it's right next to you, spatially. Like you're sitting next to the person in the row of chairs. So what Jesus is saying when he shows up and he's proclaiming this gospel of God, what he is telling us is that in Jesus In himself, the kingdom of God has made a personal appearance. The king has come. That is the decisive 
event that Jesus is proclaiming. And what's particularly striking about this is that he doesn't come out and say it. But when you understand what Jesus is saying, he is both the message and the messenger. He is the good news of the kingdom. He is the personal coming of God to bring salvation and renewal to a world falling apart at the seams. Now, if we're following Jesus here and his teaching, his preaching, that a decisive moment has come, that means that it demands a response. And I was thinking about ways to help us grasp this. It's almost as it's like a wedding proposal, marriage proposal. If someone asks you, will you marry me? That's a decisive moment. And you have to respond. You're either for it or you're against it. (laughs) Or maybe it's a new job offer. That you have to decide, am I going to stay put or am I going to move? It's a decisive moment in your life that will have enduring consequences, whether good or bad. So when Jesus shows up and says the kingdom of God is at hand, the time is fulfilled, he says to every one of us, there's only one way to respond. There's only one way to get in on this decisive moment. And it fundamentally transform everything about your life, to get in on this good news, as he calls it. And it is to repent and believe in the gospel. See, for Jesus, repent, it means to turn from, to turn from the current course of life that you lead. And then he says, believe, which means not just to turn from, but to turn to something, to turn to the gospel, as he says. And this is something very important I want you to understand, that when Jesus says, repent and believe in the gospel, he's not saying that you turn from one strategy to better yourself to another. This is not a turning from one effort at self-salvation, as it were, to another. It's not a turning from your current course of life to your own resources that you just haven't quite tapped into and with the right uh, advice or the right counseling or the right diet or the right exercise, you would become the person you really want to be. That is not repentance. Repentance is turning to Jesus. It's turning to Him. And all that He represents Himself to be all that he accomplishes, all that he promises. In other words, repentance is really forsaking trust in yourself and then entrusting all of yourself to Jesus. And here's the thing I want you to see. When we see this call to repent and believe on the heels of this decisive moment of the kingdom of God is at hand in Jesus. Let me try to apply this to you. Jesus is saying that His power, it reaches into every part of our human condition. It has the power to bring forgiveness and healing. 
Now hear me on this. No matter what anyone has done to you, the coming of the kingdom in Jesus is more powerful. No matter what you've done to someone else, the coming of the kingdom in Jesus is more powerful. It's that strong. Jesus is telling you and me, there is no event, there is no circumstance that you bring into this room this evening that can relativize, minimize, or supersede His coming. The good news of the kingdom. It's as if Jesus is saying to you and to me, there is no event, however tragic or traumatizing, that can relativize or undo or minimize my coming. What does that mean? That means that there is good news for you today, no matter what you brought with you into this worship service tonight. There is good news for you, and its power is unleashed in your life when you make it your life's business to repent and believe in the gospel. So let me ask you directly, if you're a Christian here tonight, do you believe that? Do you believe when Jesus says, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, that his coming, his arrival, his life, his death, his resurrection is the most fundamentally important, pivotal event to shape your life that has ever happened or ever will happen. And if you're here tonight and you're not a Christian, don't you want that to be true? That there is such good news in Jesus that all of the pain and the loss, the anguish, the insecurity, the fears, the unknowns can actually lose their hold on you? That to repent and to believe in Jesus is to find freedom. It's to find hope. It's to find new life that can see you through all that this life can dish out. Now, it's as if Jesus, or Mark here, as he tells us about this message of Jesus in just a verse and a half, moves on to verses 16 to 20, and almost nonchalantly he anticipates a question. Of what would it look like to repent and believe in the gospel? If if we're beginning to grasp what Mark is telling us this message is and what it means, well, what would it look like? And Mark moves on and he he shows us in Jesus' calling of his first disciples what's it look like to repent and believe in the gospel and the most basic result of what this looks like is Jesus' work of gathering us into a new community. Let's look at verses 16 to 20 together. Notice here, what's it look like when Jesus begins to call people to himself? How does he do it? Look in verse 16. He passes alongside the Sea of Galilee. He saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me. He takes initiative. 
Notice there's nothing about this, this exchange and interaction where Jesus looks at these men and says, anything, he doesn't require anything from them, no prior knowledge, no experience, nothing at all. Quite the opposite. He walks into their everyday normal lives where they work, where they get dirty, where they make business deals, where they earn a living and where they lose a living, where they're tired and weary, where they probably lose their patience. And he says to them, come follow me. Now, I think it's, it's important for us to notice that the first aspect of how Jesus creates this and welcomes us into a new community is it's a personal call to follow him. He doesn't call us into a, a moral set of guidelines or a, a path to enlightenment. He calls us to a relationship with himself. His first address to you is come follow me. But then notice what he does. He doesn't just call them into relationship with himself. He summons them. And he does it by calling them into his mission. He says, come follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. Now, what's he doing here? He's taking their livelihood and he's reframing it. He's reframing their most basic calling as fishermen around his mission in the world to save sinners. In other words, he's, he's beginning to rewire them from the inside out to fundamentally change their perspective. That their lives are not just about the horizontal, putting food on the table, making a living, building up a retirement plan. He's giving them a vision for their own lives that reaches beyond the horizontal. He's giving them a vision for their lives that extends to the eternal welfare of your neighbors. That he is about, through them, a rescue plan for men and women, boys and girls, to hear the good news of the kingdom, that they would repent and believe in the gospel. It's a fundamental change in perspective for them. Now, this, for some people, could result in a call to full-time gospel ministry. I'd, I would be an example of that. But I think for most people, this isn't just a, a uh, simplistic call to go and evangelize people or to uh, communicate the basic teaching of the Christianity. I think it's actually more than that. That to repent and believe, to have Jesus fundamentally reframe your life, reaches down into, into why you do what you do, how you talk to your children, how you talk to your neighbors, the faithfulness and diligence with which you do your work, how you share your, your, your burdens with other people, how you bear the burdens of other people. And through that, the fundamental reorientation of your life, God promises to use for the good of other people to such a degree that he would use you to lead other people in the normal everyday circumstances of your life to help them see the good news of the kingdom 
that the decisive moment in world history has come. And it's all bound up in this person, Jesus. But not only that, Jesus doesn't just go to fishermen because perhaps they were the most, I don't know, convenient or just the first people he came to. He actually goes to fishermen because it connects to an Old Testament theme. And we read about this theme in the prophets, especially Jeremiah. Listen to what we read in Jeremiah. He says, Behold, I am sending for many fishers, declares the Lord, and they shall catch them. And afterward, I will send for many hunters, and they shall hunt for them. From every mountain and every hill and out of the clefts of the rocks. For my eyes are on all their ways. They are not hidden from me, nor is their iniquity concealed from my eyes. But first, I will doubly repay their iniquity and their sin, because they have polluted my land with the carcasses of their detestable idols and have filled my inheritance with their abominations. Jeremiah was never one to be uh, light on severity. That's a word of judgment. And Jesus here is calling men to be fishermen for him. But what I want you to see here is that, that word of judgment that is echoed in Jesus' call to his disciples is, is transformed, as it were, from a call of judgment to a call of salvation. Now, how can that be? The reason that Jesus can call these men and say, I will make you fishers of men, and it not come out as a resounding call of judgment is because of what we saw earlier, that Jesus came to bear our judgment so that when he sends out his people, his church, there is good news. It's not only bad news. There is good news that Jesus has come and he has come to give life to all who would turn to him. So what's again, look, what does this look like to repent and believe? It means to, to be called into a personal relationship with Jesus, to follow him, to entrust yourself to him. But it's also a summons to, to take up his mission in the world, that it's bigger than just you and me, that it's outwardly oriented, that there is good news to be shared and discussed and wrestled with. And as that happens, what happens here is we see that these disciples leave everything and they follow him. That to repent and to believe in the good news of the kingdom takes total commitment. Here, these disciples, we're told, Jesus comes and says, follow me, and immediately leave their nets and they follow him. In verse 18 and verse 20, the same thing. They leave their father, Zebedee, with the hired servants, and they follow him. Now, I think it would be easy to look at this and think, wow, that's total commitment. But biblical scholars will talk quite a bit about, when you read through the rest of the Gospels, it's not entirely clear that the disciples literally leave that profession forever. We actually see hints where they continue to do that profession from time to time throughout the story of the Gospels. 
And furthermore, when you watch and read what do the disciples do as they follow Jesus, they are not a picture of total commitment. In fact, they are a picture of anything but that. They all leave Jesus. They all forsake him. They all decide, I don't want to be identified with this Jesus. And he's hung on a cross outside the gates alone. So at the beginning of of this gospel, when Jesus is telling us that to repent and to believe in him means leaving everything for him, giving up what you most want, to have your heart rewired, as it were, by him, so that you would begin to love what he loves and pursue what he pursues. You and I don't have that commitment. It's not within us to generate that. And yet, here, we see, what does it look like to follow him? It means to leave everything and follow him. How do you do that? The only way that you and I can do that is when every day you wake up And you don't look at your commitment, but you look at his commitment to you. Which brings us back to where we began. Remember the very few details at the beginning of this short passage. What did we learn there? Jesus initiates with us. He pursues us. And he does it knowing where it's going to take him. The only way you and I will ever grow in our loyalty and love and commitment to Jesus is when we begin to look at his pursuit of us, knowing it would cost him his life. Only then will you be able to give your life to him, to grow in your commitment and loyalty to him. There is just no other way So as we conclude this opening section of Jesus' public ministry, of what it's all about, what he came to to preach and to proclaim and to create a new community, I want you to, to, to think about this, and I leave you with this. Remember that the king has come. He has good news for you. And remember that the king has come, and he is calling you into a new community with others to follow him. You were never meant to do it alone because you need others to tell you this good news every day. And as you do it, and as we do it together, grace grows and we repent and we believe together. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we ask that as we continue to work our way through this book, And we learn more about Jesus and what he came to do. We ask that you would work by your spirit. That you would help us to repent and believe. That we would make it our life's business. To turn away from our own best efforts. At making something out of our lives. And instead turn towards Jesus. The good news of the kingdom. That you have come. That you have come to bring forgiveness. You've come to bring rescue. You've, You've come to bring healing.
You've come to restore what we have so radically messed up. And we pray that you would do that for your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.